Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that harkens back to the days of payphones. You know those things in phone booths where kids would look for spare change? Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe podcast broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. It's the final day of July of 2018. Uh, That means the days are getting shorter. The weather will, well, falls here maybe two months away for us here in the Carolinas. Uh, On tonight's show, in uh, Pipe Parts, I'm going to talk about a pipe patent and author Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, you just have to figure that one out, and you'll have to wait a few minutes to hear it. Uh, Because of a scheduling mistake, mainly my part, um, and uh, we will have more uh, pipe stories with Alan Schwartz, so more story time with Alan Schwartz. And then uh, music by request, mailbag, and a rant. All that coming up in tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, and uh, sometimes I, uh, I talk about what I'm smoking, and I've said in the past that, you know, every summer I smoke a tin or two of McCraney's Red Ribbon. Yeah, I have one bowl in the morning on a good, hot, humid day with a cup of coffee, and it's a perfect way to start it, but I only do it when it's humid. Well... About 10 days ago, I was gifted a open tin, mostly full, probably missing two or three bowls full, of McCraney's Red Ribbon, the 1983 crop, tinned in 1999. And if you think that uh, aging tobacco for a couple of years will change it, try aging it in a tin for 19 years and then uh, starting out with a 16-year-old leaf in the first place. So uh, 35 years ago, this was sitting in the ground. Uh, I've been enjoying the heck out of it. Had a little bit of a little bit of an issue getting it into the right kind of pipe because it is uh, a little more uh, spicy and a little less sweet than, uh, than what it would have been maybe, I don't know, uh, 15 years ago, but still quite enjoyable. And this morning I, uh, well, I'm probably down to about, uh, one and a half bowls left of it. And then that'll be the end of that. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And uh, so here's what I was doing. 
Yeah, I was doing some research for uh, pipe part segments, and I wanted to go back and talk about some of the uh, pipe patents that may have been filed out there, some, you know, oddities or strange things, whatever it is. So I came across this uh, pipe patent filed in, uh, looks like October 30th of 1944, and then finally granted in February of 1946. And here's what it is. It's, uh, uh, well, I'll read it to you. It says three claims. Um, this invention relates to a tobacco pipe. One object of the invention is to provide a tobacco pipe which may be kept clean with the least possible difficulty. Another object of the invention is to provide a pipe which may be cleaned with the least possible chance of soiling the uh, lingers and surrounding objects. Another object of the invention is to provide a pipe which may be cleaned without disturbing burning the burning tobacco in the bowl. Uh, to this end, the invention provides a bowl and stem unit preferably integrally formed and having a tubular member slidably mounted therein and carrying a bit at one end. The tubular member has an opening connecting the interior thereof with the interior of the bowl when in the smoking position. For cleaning purposes, the bit is pressed toward the bowl and stem unit, and the tubular member then extends completely beyond the bowl with the opening outside of the bowl. An ordinary pipe stem cleaner of suitable length may, uh, may then be run completely through the tubular member. To return the pipe to smoking position, the bit is pulled away from the bowl and stem unit and, clo and a closed end of the tubular member substantially seals the bowl. I, there, there's a picture attached here and it looks uh, it, it looks essentially like a metal tube is attached to a stem and then the stem and the, and the entire tube just slide in and out of the pipe uh, and it's got an exit out the back of it so instead of pulling it straight out you can push it forward through the bowl and it comes out the back of the bowl and cleans it. And then when, it, when you close it, that gap fills back in. Um, I don't know why you would want to do that, but what caught my interest in this, in this patent in particular, which obviously I've never seen it, uh, it's signed by a guy named Kurt Vonnegut. The, to the best of my knowledge, I've done all the research that I can, uh, this was filed in Indianapolis, and it is the author, Kurt Vonnegut, who had at that point returned from World War II and was a smoker and was goofing around. He had spent some time in college as a mechanical engineer or uh, uh, let's see, it says here, uh, Vonnegut attended Cornell University but dropped out in January 1943 and enlisted in the United States Army. As part of his training, he studied mechanical engineering at Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Tennessee. He was then deployed to Europe to fight in World War II and was captured by the Germans during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and, and it goes on to say he, you know, he, ended, up, he ended up coming home and 
and he was a smoker, a pipe smoker, and created this, uh, I don't know, unplausible way of really cleaning a pipe because now you have to have a hole at the back end of the bowl that drill that takes the draft hole from the shank all the way through the bowl, and then you have this metal tube that you're pulling in and out like a trombone. Uh, anyway, well, and then... And then uh, Kurt Vonnegut discovered that in the 19, in the late 40s, early 50s, he could write. And he went on to publish his first novel, Player Piano, in 1952. Uh, in the nearly 20 years that followed, according to Wikipedia, Vonnegut published several novels that were only marginally, marginally successful, such as Cat's Cradle and God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Uh, Vonnegut's breakthrough was his commercially and critically successful sixth novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. The book's anti-war sentiment resonated with its readers amidst the ongoing Vietnam War. Uh, Later in his career, and it goes on, and of course, uh, Vonnegut went on to be on the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. Uh, Tons of other writing, but at the same time, uh, he had switched from uh yeah he he'd switched from pipes to cigarettes and uh yeah probably had he stayed with the pipes he might have uh might have lengthened his life a little bit uh but anyway just a uh, an oddity that i found wandering through the hallows of the internet that uh, kurt vonnegut actually held a patent for a tobacco pipe and an easier way to clean and maintain it All right, we'll take a break here, and then we'll have uh, story times with Alan Schwartz. This is Internet Radio. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco, expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well-loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we continue the stories with Alan and where I ask him... uh, you know, why did he get into the business of pipes and tobaccos, and how? Interesting question. Uh, when is uh, his variable dates? But um, the basic dating uh, goes back to last daughter was born. What, at which point we had moved back into Manhattan. We had a an apartment on West End Avenue, and. Um, my wife, as you know, is a literary agent, so it, it worked out for everybody. And uh, and I was, I'm trying to count dates: 82, 83, 84. Um, in the in the early 80s, okay, I, I couldn't I couldn't put a figure on it, but it was uh, it was around then. And uh, my 
wife wanted to, my wife is English, and she wanted to move, was thinking of moving back to London. She broached the subject with me. She's still a British. She lives here on a permanent visa, but she moved back to London, uh, England, uh, because her mother had died recently, and she was, uh, she felt that she had the obligation as the only a daughter, she had one brother each side of her in age, uh, who, uh, who she had the obligation to kind of move back to take care of her father. For, you know, for, me, for her to admit that her father really didn't need taking care of because each of the brothers had, had their own families and they had, they lived, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, opposite one north, one south of where the father was. So, and very capable women were they married to and her father was very well taken care of. But this was, you know, a rescue fantasy. Um, and I'm not saying it to put it down, but I said, well, look, I have to, I have to, uh, um, I can't go to England and live on your earnings. She's a literary agent and her uh, cooperative, uh, she had British agents who were working with her and knew them very well. She was a major heavy hitter in a very big agency in New York. She said, well, I called John or Frank or Marilyn or whatever the names were, you know, to the agents. Uh, and, um, and there's no problem. I can work in England. And I'm a British subject, so I don't have to go through any rigmarole. Well, I'm not a British subject, and it would be illegal for me to work unless I had a working visa. And I wasn't certainly going to continue in my teaching career because whatever, whatever, I was getting fairly well paid already by City City University. And uh, English uh, teachers, uh, professors, it doesn't matter the number of degrees. You can, they, they get paid what, what we shall call in uh, American uh, – New York jargon, bupkis, you know, very, <laughs> yeah. very little, uh, and uh, and not really enough to earn a living. So I said, well, I'll let me uh, go exploring. I'll find out if there's something interesting. Um, I had done a story for one of the uh, magazines on uh, McConnell, McConnell Company, yep. and Ken McConnell, who was running the shop, Mick, his brother, was the sales guy out. No, he was rarely in the office. Ken McConnell, who was running the uh, place, uh, I knew him, uh, and I would stop by once in a while and get some tobacco from him and, you know, sh shoot the breeze. Uh, he let me know that he wanted to sell his company because he was thinking of retiring. And he did it, as I'm sure he did it with a lot of other people. He wanted it. He wasn't going to go out and advertise it, so he dropped the, dropped the word with a number of people who were in the business, figuring at some point something would connect. And it connected with me directly, even though I didn't know it right away. But I was telling an English friend about McConnell and what it was like. And uh, I, he was also a pipe smoker. So I took him the next time I was out, uh, was in England. Uh, on, I was working, as, I, I was making my living, part of my living, as a freelance journalist by then. And uh, next time I was on an assignment, which was a couple of weeks later, and I was in London, uh, I, I went, I, I dragged this friend of mine to McConnell as well, and he looked it over and so on and so forth. And I said, Ken, I think that if we can, if we can begin to put together a deal, because my f English friend had a business partner who was also interested strictly as investment. And the long and short of it is now to give you the bottom line is that we went through the entire process of trying to acquire McConnell. And we would have bought the factory, the land the, uh, which he owned, he owned the property, as well as all the stock and, and, and whatever. And what would come along with it was what 
a lot of your listeners don't like to know is that McConnell's business was not the major business were not in the tins that had his name on it. They were in the tins that had other people's names on it because yeah. he was basically a contract manufacturer who manufactured stuff. And here, the listeners, you're going to get a lot of mail on this. He manufactured stuff for Dunhill. He manufactured stuff for Rattrays. He manufactured stuff for Freiburg and Trayer. He manufactured for, for all of the holy names you know, in, in the in the pipe lexicon that people want to think of as several little men sitting in a, in a garret and putting <laughs> together their blends. And, you know, it was true at one point, but it ain't true now. And uh, certainly wasn't by the 1980s. It was not true. Uh, I guess they were one of the, you know, they were certainly little shops. But especially in England, where the licensing laws are so strict and where they're very quick to get somebody in if you you step a little bit over the line and fine you heavily and and uh, you know and lay claim to uh, your stock and all this and that. So uh, people don't fudge it too much there. But anyway, the 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 value of McConnell's was not was certainly in the brands that they had out there on the market. But, but again, high end brands don't make a living for you. What makes a living for you in that side of the business was what you manufacture for other people under their name. So if you're manufacturing John Cotton on the, the blend on behalf of the uh, the owners of the John Cotton trademark, uh, they are paying you and then putting their own labels on it or else you're putting it on for them. And the same thing goes with name all the other top brands. Now, some of them had their own their own shops, their own workshops, and didn't do, didn't didn't buy them from McConnell's. I mean, the Balkan Sobrani was pretty much an independent shop. And knowing the business as I do, certainly now, I suspect that Dr. Redstone and his Balkan Sobrani people also did, uh, you know, um, what you call it, uh, uh, contract manufacturing for other other uh, sellers. Sellers. I don't know which ones. I could find out, but it's it's a little late for that because most of them are dead. <laughs> so, but they all did that because it was the other way of earning a living. They manufactured private label, uh, you know, in unmarked tins, uh, and uh, it was uh, anyway. So we we tried to put together the company, and we didn't uh, succeed after a year or so of negotiation. McConnell reneged on the deal, and uh, we all kind of went our merry ways, by which time I was bitten by the tobacco business. And during which time I had met some of the other uh, customers, uh, even people who were interested in, and uh, you, you want to know how I backed into the tobacco business, right? Yep. Okay. Um, including in Germany, Michael Kohlhauser. Now, Kohlhauser owned the manufacturing side of a company called Kohlhauser & Kopp. And Kohlhauser manufactured tobacco in Hamburg, uh, and then later on in an outskirt, in a suburb of Hamburg uh, called Rellingen. And Kopp was his business partner, but he was from Frankfurt and he manufactured leatherware. Because Frankfurt and its its, uh, its neighbor city, sort of like the to to Frankfurt itself, let's say Frankfurt is New York, Manhattan, for say, and the neighbor city would be uh, you know someplace out in Queens, uh, you know, 15 miles away or so. But uh, it called uh, which in this case bordered on uh, one part of Frankfurt called. Um, 
Offenbach. And Offenbach was the center of leather craft in the old days. And at one point, there was a great division between Frankfurt and Offenbach. But what with the spread of cities, you know, now you can't tell the players without a scorecard. You know, you know where the line is because that's where the tram stops. I mean, quite literally, the last stop is where the city line is between Frankfurt and Offenbach. Otherwise, they look the same, same kind of people, and nobody needs a passport to walk across the line. Anyway, so Bernie Kopp, who's leather manufacturer, and he partnered with Kohlhase, who's really an investment thing, also a pipe smoker, Bernie. Uh, and uh, Michael Kohlhase became a very good friend, as did Bernie. And uh, they, um, I started to work with them and got them to, I said, they said, what, what, what do you want with this? I said, well, you know, I kind of like to represent the lines. By this time, the idea of moving back to London was, uh, you know, especially after the debacle, debacle with, with McConnell, when it all fell apart. Uh, and by, th by this time, it was a year, a year and a half later, and Joan had a long time past given up the idea of moving back to London to take care of her father, especially when her father told her, I don't need you to move back to London. <laughs> that was, was rather direct. So, uh, you know, she went on with her life as a literary agent in New York, and, and, uh, and you know, we did, we did quite well, but I, I was bitten by the business. And I, I, got, um, I got the uh, Kohlhase and... Uh, but largely Kohlhauser, to agree to let me distribute as a, another company, which we would form, not quite yet, but another company uh, that we would form to distribute the brands that weren't spoken for, let's say, in the U.S. market, okay? And to contract manufacturers stuff that I could sell in England. It was my way of keeping one foot in both camps. So we started a small distribution operation in out of London and by this time I knew a lot of the London uh, 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 pipe shops and uh, certainly uh, pipe makers like uh, Bill Taylor and uh, uh, Ken Ken Barnes who was the uh, who was in ma manufacturing pipes uh, upshore and uh, Barnes was the son of Major Barnes uh, who's I forget his first name who was the um, managing, not the managing director, because he had no share of it, but sort of the the the, the, the non-directorial manager of Sheraton, and uh, Barnes Barnes was in charge of the manufactory Sheraton, uh, which probably involved three people in a little room somewhere. But but the point <laughs> is that uh, he was in the pipe business and Ken, his son, wanted to start it. So he was down in in Winchester, I think. I was there uh, last year for a family wedding and I went around to look at where Ken used to have his uh, little workshop just outside. And it's still there, but it's run by different people, which we're not going to get into now. Anyway, he and Bill Taylor and uh, Les Wood, uh, whom I know... And uh, they all had brands, and uh, I went to, I met a guy uh, out of Edinburgh um, who ran a company called Scott, Scotland Direct. So what, and Scotland Direct and I started a sort of a handshake partnership because they were distributors of all things Scottish, from whiskey to some of their own brands, from whiskey to tartan plaids to, uh, you know, 
to uh, uh, smoked salmon, any anything Scottish you could think of, bagpipes. I mean, he was he was a real marketer, very very much of a a hustler kind of guy, and he would have been perfectly comfortable in New York too. Um, and he was. And and we started a manufacturing operation, not manufacturing. We started a uh, a company based upon the the brands that I was able to corral, and I got some other companies involved, like uh, uh, Manchester Tobacco and so on. And we produced private labels for Scotland Direct, and we produced uh, uh, other private labels for um, for the pipe shops in and around London with a name that we conceived just because I liked the name. I'm mostly having known it through, again, my literature study from Thomas Hardy, which was Wessex. Now, Wessex no longer exists as a county. It did at one point and was the large uh, uh, southwestern county, uh, which included most of the ports on the southern coast, uh, on the, the west southwestern coast of England and uh, and as opposed to the county called Essex which still exists which is uh, in, the, in the east of England in the east in, in Essex and west in Wessex and dukes thereof and so on but that's the way it was <laughs> Wessex later on became a non-existent county uh, and only exists as a county as a place in Thomas Hardy but it's that whole area um, and I don't know how we came up with it, but the name Wessex we liked. And we uh, got registration. Uh, England made it difficult to get registration because you couldn't register something that was a, uh, a known name, a proper noun for even if it was no longer a place. But we called it Wessex Tobacco Company. We got a, uh, a different kind of registration, a sort of a... a it wasn't quite a trademark registration. We were able to register the trademark, but we were not able to register the name. So we had a virtual control over it. And then in the United States, we were able to register Wessex. So so we had Wessex Tobacco Company, uh, LTD. And uh, in, in London, it was simply Wessex Tobacco Company. And I sublet some space from uh, our uh, accountant uh, in very good location, kind of County Corner from Euston Station, we're in a major central London, so we could use the address. I had a little room there that I worked in, by, you know, and a conference room that I could have meetings in. It was a perfect operation. And I would go to Edinburgh, the guy from Edinburgh would come down, and uh, uh, Arthur Germain was uh, manufacturing tobacco for us too under uh, our own label. And, uh, you know, and I would see him, he'd often come to London, and uh, um, it worked. It grew and it grew and it grew until it had a kind of critical mass. And I was spending a lot of time, you know, I was, I was in, in, in New York one week and then in, in, in Europe uh, the following week. And uh, uh, it worked like that for a number of years. And uh, at some point, we decided to pull it all together and stop the actual stuff in London. We still serviced the companies, but I had someone else doing the work, you know, doing my subcontracting yeah. uh a man who had worked for me, uh, and when, as we built up the company, we had a bit of staff. So he didn't know what to do. I said, go hire a small warehouse. I'll pay for it. You know, you can do this all from home. Register another phone number so you can take calls at home without having to go anyplace. And uh, We will pause right here and have more stories with Alan Schwartz after this. 
My name is Shane Ireland, and I'm the pipe manager at smokingpipes.com. It's my job to source and select the absolute best pipes from all over the world. We take collecting seriously, so you should think of us as your team of personal pipe shoppers. When you browse our site and make your selection, the pipe you've picked out has traveled from the maker to our merchandising and quality control department. It was then given to our highly skilled photographers, videographers, and copywriters before being carefully and lovingly packaged by our shipping team. The pipe you see is the pipe you get, and it's just the one you've been searching for. Whether you're on the hunt for that next special piece to add to your collection, or would simply like a recommendation from our extensive selection of tobaccos, give us a call at 1-888-366-0345, and our friendly experts will be glad to assist you. We are quality. We are experts. We are collectors. We are SmokingPipes.com. And we are back and we uh, continue with Alan and we talk about um, technology of the day as they're setting up the business. These were the days before cell phones, okay? <laughs> to make that <laughs> yeah. clear to you, listeners, we didn't have such things. There were landlines, and most people in England certainly, they when we had extensions in our bedroom and living room upstairs and downstairs, they thought we were crazy. Most English homes of the day had one telephone in which, and the telephone was located right inside the front door on a little table. So anybody who got a call, and the telephone, therefore, was not, as our parents used to say, and Joan said, it was not for visits. You know, it was was to get a call or to call out and and, uh, to keep it short because you paid for every minute. And, of course, you had to be 50 because that was God's way. And it was – so that was was the story. We started that company, and then we closed down, leaving a vestige of it still operating as Wessex Tobacco Company because I wanted to hang on to that with with this – a general a jack of all trades who was working for me, and he and he got the product and stored it. God knows where. Maybe it was in his garage, but I, I don't. I don't really know. I, I think maybe it was. Uh, he said, "Yes, I have a two-car garage, and I'll, I'll sublet to the company half of the space. That's it." And he and he did that, and it was fine. I didn't worry about it. Um, in the suburbs, nobody's going to break in and steal it. Uh, anyway, cut a long story short is that that ran for a while, and uh, then we kind of let it slide. I don't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with that because we got back to the states, and I needed, I, I couldn't run this out of my, uh, you know, out of my basement. I just, I just couldn't. So I, I uh, got, I again spoke to the people at James B. Russell, who I had become very friendly with. And they let me have some office space and the use of their uh, warehouse for storage of goods. And, uh, you know, there was an exchange of some value. But uh, but it was very nice because they were tobacco people. They knew their business. Uh, and they were very commercial. And I learned a lot from them, from Dan Blumenthal, who owned the company, and from, uh, uh, of course, uh, the former owner of, um, of the Bork and Sobrani brand, I'll, I'll come up with it as I talk. He actually was a medical doctor. You know, he, he he inherited the Balkan Sobrani Company. But anyway, he was a frequent visitor to uh, to New York because he and Dan Blumenthal, who owned uh, James B. Russell, James B. Russell was the import side. Um, 
he and Dan formed a company called James B. Russell. And James B. Russell was the, because of the English, it was never at any James B. Russell. They opened a shop uh, in Manhattan on 50, right right behind Carnegie Hall on 50, uh, 57th and 7th Avenue. This was on 50, 56th and 7th Avenue, just a few doors in. And uh, they had high-end pipes and tobacco. And it was James E. Russell, and it was owned by uh, uh, Blumenthal and um, Redstone, right? Which is Rothstein, you know, I mean. But he was actually a medical doctor. So I asked him <laughs> once, that was the story. I said, you know, why did you get out of medicine? He said, it was an indiscretion of my youth. <laughs> I, never, I never forgot that line. He was a very bright, very funny man. I got to know quite well later. and visited him in London where he had a wonderful, wonderful house and beautiful section overlooking uh, overlooking St. James Park. And, and he, he, was, he was quite an intelligent and very, very, uh, you know, very delightful person socially. Anyway... Uh, anyway, I, I had I had met him there, and um, I was. They were very helpful. That's the bottom line. They were very helpful to me. Uh, we had a good rapport. I worked there on my own stuff. Uh, set up a company, um, and it wasn't yet yet um, X Y Z that came later. It was Brant Schwartz. My wife's maiden name was Brant, Joan Brant, and uh, evidently I'm Alan Schwartz. So Brant Schwartz International, whatever it was, that was the name of the company, BSI. And, and she's Cody. and she's always reminded you that, that you're number two in the relationship. No, she hasn't. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, she, yeah, yes, of course. Um, the uh, Right. I sometimes would. She's a very independent, strong woman. You know, but and she's also the other side of her. She's a nice, uh, a nice English Jewish housewife. I mean, that that's the other side of her. Very, very homey, but very tough businesswoman. Worked for years for Sterling Lord Agency, which is a major agency in New York, and uh, and then went to on uh, Literistics, another agency, and then Sterling and Literistic joined forces, and she and she set up her own company when our daughter got uh, too young to be handled by a full time. Uh, nanny came in so joan didn't want to well i bringing up i know i know your wife well enough to say that you definitely married up well thank you very much yeah she came from a fairly well-to-do family a father's a dental surgeon and and uh and so on and um and joan is very much like her mother so uh anyway I don't know if I'm very much like a father. I don't really think so, but different personality, but the same sort of attitudes towards things. Um, the, uh, no, I'm serious. Uh, anyway, point is that we uh, we developed the company rather nicely, and then I want to I want to skip through this, and you come back, and we could fill in parts. But just to where we got to to where we are now, <clears throat> here's the other part of it. Um, one day. When I was uh, finishing my work at Turner, I, I moved to Atlanta. One day in New York, I got a call from Atlanta, and I was already working quite a bit as an editor, doing freelance work and writing, writing some uh, ghostwriting books for some well-known people I cannot mention. I mean, it's an agreement that we don't. Uh, and doing a lot of magazine articles about everything, you know, from uh, interviews with the Princess Diana to, uh, you know, to a, a piece on uh, 
Ramirez guitars in Madrid to uh, you know to this that and the other thing to uh, uh, touring uh, the, uh, the the Scotch whiskey makers. It was all that kind of stuff that appears in feature magazines, and I was earning a very nice living from it. Um, and I I was offered uh, a piece in uh, Connoisseur magazine on the world's best cigar because I knew the editor. I came to him with a pipe story, and he was a guy who smoked pipe and cigars, and he wanted me to do a cigar story. He thought it was more romantic, uh, and I, they gave me virtually unlimited budget, and I, I went around and I did the story, and that story mentioned that what because I had to come up with what I thought were the best cigars currently on the market and not obscure ones. He didn't want them because with a commercial publication, you don't want to, ma uh, I'm saying this, uh, giving away trade secrets, but commercial publication like Connoisseur Magazine was then, it was a uh, owned by uh, a major uh, a major publishing combine. Uh, you, you don't you don't say the world's greatest thing comes from you know uh, some some guy who rolls cigars in a little in a little uh, one man shop in the back of uh, you know uh, uh, a suburb of uh, you know of outer of, of outer Mongolia you know I mean you 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 come up with something that's on the market and it's available why because they want to then go to that manufacturer and push him for advertising. Uh, it's a business. I mean, yeah. you know, people don't like to think of it that way, but it's a business. You know that too, and I know that. But a lot of the people who listen to your blog probably don't want to believe that. Uh, but it's true. So anyway, he said, yeah, but he said, keep it within the realm. He said, I'm not saying don't mention anything that you really think is great. He said, but in terms of, you know, keep it within the limitation of what's available commercially in the States by by substantial manufacturers. Anyway, that wasn't terribly difficult because I had come to the conclusion uh, after much uh, interviewing, speculating, and traveling that that then the Oil de Monterey, uh, w which was made by uh, Frank Yanessa, uh, Dan Blumenthal's partner, and it was made in Honduras, and I'd been in Honduras several times with him, and I loved the, the, the tobacco and so on. I liked the blend. That Oil de Monterey and... Uh, and uh, the, the Fuente, the Fuente cigars, uh, which was smaller still, but they had a big distribution operation in Tampa for their machine mates. So I came to the conclusion that the 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 the, the, uh, the oil and the, uh, the the Fuente cigar, um, I think it was called me eight five eight or something like that at that time. I don't I don't really remember exactly which one it was, although I liked the one, frankly, that he made for the Cuban market, which was called Bowser. And uh, anyway, and I mentioned that B A U Z A. It was very strong. It tasted like the really tasted like the old Cuban cigars that my friends and I used to smoke when we went to lunch in the Italian restaurant near near Queens College. Anyway, <laughs> long story short is that I came back and I said I told the editor this was the uh, these these were the two greatest cigars, and he said, well. Have to call them the world's second greatest cigar because they're not Cuban. I said, "Yeah, look, what you can buy Cuban now and you can get here is Drex. So just forget that. Don't be apologetic. Don't call the magazine the world's second greatest story, world's second greatest cigar." Well, they didn't, and they published a major story, uh, and everybody was very happy, and that put me on the cigar map in the United States. I was still living in New York. Uh, well, this went on for many years, et cetera, et cetera, but that gave me street creds in another part of the tobacco business. <laughs> so 
Okay, so now, well, I'll fast forward a couple of years. <laughs> um, okay, I'm sitting in my office uh, in, in New York, and <clears throat> I get a call from a friend of mine who's a managing editor or whatever he was, the Washington Post, and, and he said, I just got a call from Ted Turner, uh, I, and he, they're looking for an international heavy to go down and do an editorial job for them. I said, what is it involved? He said, I don't know. He said, Ted said, and it's... Uh, you know, it's it's print. It's not it's not broadcast stuff. So I called. Uh, I called. I spoke to Ted. He said we put we put together a book uh, with uh, everybody who this was in that we could pinpoint the year. This was in 1989. And uh, I mean, I had prior to that been doing my work. You know, I was were teaching still. I was running my tobacco business. Uh, doing my usual leaving the house before seven in the morning returning after seven at night because I did my co my my college university classes teaching earlier and then I went out to the New Jersey where I was running the tobacco business and distributing you know back home was a, put in over 100 miles every day just driving in big circle wow. uh, so I went from Queens uh, now out near LaGuardia past LaGuardia out to um, uh, Upper Saddle River New Jersey and then came back into Manhattan at night so it was, it was, it was quite some fun but it really was and I got a call so they 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 got a book all the big uh, CNN contributors most of whom were actually uh, on, on the street journalists not broadcast necessarily because CNN was relatively small we're in Moscow at the time of the attempted overthrow of the government by the military. So this was 1989 uh, or uh, 90. And Gorbachev was put under house arrest and so on, and the army tried to take over the country. Finally, well, they didn't succeed. You know, he was restored to power, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, I got a call that Ted had put together a number of the uh, people who were on, on – uh, not on staff, but who were in Moscow at the time, and they wrote articles of a different phases of the, uh, you know, of, of the overthrow and this, that, and the other. And they wanted an international heavy. So my Washington Post editor friend said, and uh, he said, "Listen, I don't know." He said, "I'll call Alan Schwartz. He would be the right man for you because he has a publishing background and a, and a, a commercial background too. So he's not doesn't have his his." his his nose in the air. He doesn't have his head up his ass, is what the friends. <laughs> uh, but in, in any case, uh, I uh, Ted called a few minutes later and said, uh, "Listen, uh, this uh, hello, Alan. This is Ted. I mean, it was like you know we were friends for twenty years, but <laughs> he said I would like you to come down and look at this uh, uh, thing that we're putting together." I said, "Well, why can't you do it? You certainly have an adequate staff." He said, first of all, we really don't not not to do print." said we have a small publishing division but they they just can't handle it and the editor there is a young guy and he's getting pushed around by wolf blitzer and claire shipman and they da, 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 and all their all their very high visibility uh writers he said i need somebody who can uh, you know come in and take over so i went down there the next day and uh though he called a meeting of the, all the people they were all back in cnn doing a thing uh in, in atlanta and um, I immediately started to get the kind of flack that I, I, I was cautioned to expect. And I said, look, I said, I'm in the same business you are. I'm not a broadcast uh, writer. I'm a print writer. I said, so they call and I'm an editor and I have a lot of creds. So 
Ted called me in to do the job, and I got to do the job. I said, you know, that, that means just like when you're working for your television editor, I knew enough so they couldn't, you know, pull a fast one. I said, you know very well that you may, you may uh, come up with a half hour or 15 minute story, and your editor uh, is going to say, this gets uh, 90 seconds. Okay, I said, you know it very well, I know it very well, so this is going to be the same thing. In print editing, which most of you know enough about because you probably did it uh, before you were into magazine writing or uh, or online broadcasting, not online, I mean uh, broadcast, I said, you know, we have to cut, we cut. If I have just a budget of so many words for this story, because this is not going to be just a word book. This is a book, this is CNN. They have pictures, they were there. They have all kinds of uh, still photography which they want to run, and they want this book to look interesting. Uh, oh, you mean like a coffee table book? I said, look, it'll wind up on some coffee tables because people will buy it for prestige and leave, leave it there for people to ooh and ah. But this is going to be a coffee table book with with content and it's not going to be gigantic format and but that means that if i have 850 words for your article and you've given me 1850 words 100 words a uh, thousand words of that are going to be cut and i'll give you the option of doing it yourself or i'll do it you know and i'm an experienced editor so i know what i'm doing uh well you know one of the one of the people whose name i won't mention got up and walked out of the room i said fine i said if you can't work it you know no work no pay uh I'd rather you do it now than do it later. Uh, and a couple of people made stirring things, and then ten minutes later, the guy who walked out of the room came back and said, "Okay, you know, let's let's get going." And we did. We put out a successful book. Uh, and about two weeks into the project, I was commuting. I was going down on the. I, I pushed my classes to, they were graduate classes anyway, but that, or, or advanced courses. I pushed them to. Uh, Monday and Wednesday, fortunately, it was at the early part of the semester. Monday and Friday, I mean, it was at the early part of the semester, and I, I was able to get uh, all the students said, yeah, so we, we, what hour on Monday? I said, let's work it out. Let's see what works for everybody and make sure we have a room for it, and that's it. And I got the classes into Monday and Friday, and I used to go down Monday night and Tuesday morning for a few weeks or a couple, you know, five or six weeks and commute. Of course, all expenses were paid by Turner and so on. And sometime during the uh, <clears throat> during that uh, the first couple of weeks, I was taken aside by uh, the the editor, not the editor, the publisher of Turner Publishing. Uh, we went out to lunch, and he said, "Would you be interested in a full-time job here?" I said, "Yeah, it depends on what rank, what I'm doing, and what you pay." You know. And at that point, we were ready, kind of, to get out because we. Uh, uh, our daughter was by then uh, eight, nine years old, uh, the youngest thing. You know, the others were older. They were already out of school. Um, I mean, they were in college or whatever. Uh, and we uh, we moved to Atlanta. And I was in Atlanta, and who came to visit me but Michael Kohlhauser from Kohlhauser & Kopp in Hamburg and his family, which, whom we knew very well by this point. And I told him this was about two and a half, almost three years of the time I was into Turner, I gave him the cook's tour of the uh, premises and handed him off to somebody who could show him all the television studios and so on. And uh, they were very impressed. And they, I said, well, it's very nice, but I want you to know that uh, uh, I'm leaving. Uh, well, why are you leaving? I said, I, 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 I like the work. I hate the corporate side of it. It's just not working for me, you know. 
I, I, I don't like the endless meetings about nothing, uh, and uh, <laughs> I like I like the work, and I don't like to uh, uh, supervise uh, people who sometimes act like a bunch of babies. I said, you know, they act like high school students. Um, anyway, um, I, we we agreed to part company, and I left. So Michael said to me, "So what are you gonna, what are you going to be when you grow up?" <laughs> I said, "Michael is German, of course, speaks perfect English." Uh, I said, what I'm going to be when I grow up? I said, I don't know. Let me look around. And he and he was the one who came up with the idea. He said, why don't you start a distribution operation from here? It doesn't look like a very many heavy duty. I said, they're all lane limited is here. <laughs> you don't, they don't really need another. He said, yeah, but they've got their own products. And do you know them? I said, yeah, very well. See quite a bit of them. So, uh, I mean, as friends, not as I didn't do business with them. They wanted at one point to distribute uh, the Wessex tobacco for me, but I wouldn't allow it because I had a sort of a obligation of honor with uh, Dan Blumenthal, who had been very, and his partner, Frank Yesnessa, who had been very nice to me. Uh, and I said to Michael, it's, it's a pretty good idea. And he said, I'm sure I can get uh, two other people, certainly my partner, Bernie, and perhaps uh, Wolfgang Dietz, who manufactures the nicotine, the filters uh, for pipes, as well as, uh, you know, whatever people use for filters. And I guess they use them in some cigar or cigar holders and stuff, but mostly pipes. So uh, <clears throat> I went to Germany again. Uh, I had a, a, a long meeting with them. And, uh, and uh, they love us anyway, because my my wife is actually a fluent German speaker, having grown up in England, born in England, but her parents uh, were uh, refugees or escapees from Hitler, and, and they wound up in, in England, and uh, so she grew up hearing German spoken at home, and uh, English in the street, and so on, and uh, became a very fine linguist, uh, speaks French and German and, uh, and Portuguese and Spanish, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But, but uh, so... Uh, the Germans loved us, and and we um, and we had no problem. What they did is they helped. I I went. I came back to here to Atlanta. He said, "Do it in Atlanta because you have such ease of transportation. These big, wide open roads. You don't have the kind of incredible <laughs> congestion traffic that you find in New York or Philadelphia or any place." He said, "And I think it would be a great place to start a distribution operation." He said, uh, "Lane Limited knew what it was doing. They did so." Uh, you know, and a good, a very good airport. It's actually technically the world's largest airport. Um, I didn't know that, but now I have to say it. The rest they throw me out of Atlanta. Yeah. But no, it is a very good airport. You can get anywhere from there uh, very often without changes. So uh, I uh, I looked around for space. I got another friend who was uh, in business, and I said I need some advice about warehouses. And we went around looking, and uh, we found something that was ideal count the traffic commute from where I live uh, and uh, you know 10 minute drive but count the traffic so it was fine morning and, and available alternate routes and we rented a nice warehouse uh, and uh, and the Kohlhauser cop and uh, Dietz stocked it for me you know um, and gave me seed money and so on and there are further stories involved in that but you know I earned back the seed money and uh, and wanted went to pay them back and they wouldn't take it they said just just use it well use it within the business reinvest buy more stock which they was buying from them anyway so it wasn't a stupid thing on their part to give up a certain amount of cash because they got it back when i bought the stock so uh, anyway 
And it went on for a number of years. It went on very well. Uh, and uh, I got very familiar, added new product. And then at that point, James B. Russell had uh, was was over, basically. It was being run by the son-in-law of Dan Blumenthal. Blumenthal had retired. And uh, his key man, uh, uh, Sherwin Seltzer, who was a very good cigar man and, and fine manager, he had left. He had retired as well, and uh, the company was being run as a legal fiction by Dan's son-in-law, and uh, they gave up all the brands. And as soon as they gave up all the rat trays that I didn't have and the McConnell that I didn't have, I had a few and other brands like that, Fiber and Trayer and, and so on, I had an agreement with Michael Kohlhaser that they would become my brands because it was his interest and Bernie's interest and so on, Wolfgang's interest to have us uh, carry uh, all the high-end brands, most of the high-end brands that anybody wanted. I still have more of Alan to come this summer, and uh, so don't worry, we're not done with him yet. And uh, when you when you see him, you know, remember, remember he's a doctor, doctor. He's got a PhD and a doctor of pipes. And we'll be back in just a minute. What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking Archibaldino red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. internet radio all right we'll jump right into music because i got a uh where did i get i got a message on face uh no i got a message on the pipes magazine radio show page last week and it was from i'm fumbling while i find it here it was from uh smoking for fun and he turned me on to uh two pipe smoking musicians one christian mcbride who i was not familiar with so i started uh Doing what uh, Googlers do and Googled around and found Christian McBride is a uh, young bass player. Well, let's say he's not he's not exactly young, but um, he's got a Grammy award. He's got a couple of Grammy awards. He's got a big band. He's got a trio. He's got a ton of music out. You need to go to Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, McBride, M-C-B-R-I-D-E dot com. And uh, check out everything he's got. There's a ton of great music there. And uh, this one is the uh, latest single that he's released. And it's on Spotify right now. And it is called The Middleman.
is Christian McBride on bass. I'm serious. Check him out. Lots of good stuff. You got mail. You got mail. You got mail. In the mailbag, remember, email me, Brian, at PipesMagazine.com or post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page, just like Smoking for Fun did in, uh, with that fine suggestion. Uh, real quickly, through uh, from last week's show of Stories with Alan Schwartz, Casey Ghost says another fine show with Alan Schwartz. His memories of the early days is most enjoyable. And uh, Down Home Smoker says Alan has some great stories and it's a nice change of pace. The sound bites on your show at the beginning and end always crack me up. Uh, glad you like him. Uh, and then he says, even though I'm generally not in the mood for jazz, you can't help but respect the skill that genre requires. Pleasant smokes. Hope you like that music, too. Uh, Whaley said, great show. There's nothing like hearing stories told by the old timers. You got to love them. And Crash the Gray says, these chats with Alan are definitely a nice feature, changing the flow of the show for a little while. The French breakfast was quite amusing. And uh, Writing Rav says, I really enjoy these shows with Alan. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad you all are enjoying it. I've gotten a lot of positive comments from him. And again, glad to have him uh, here because otherwise I would have been... Uh, panicked for a uh, for a show for this week so anyway again comments or questions email me brian at pipesmagazine.com or post them on the pipes magazine radio show page on pipes magazine and uh, you can follow the pipes magazine radio show on facebook all right rant time coming up next there's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Cowboy. Cowboy. So I'm walking in our market, our local neighborhood market, nationally owned chain last week. Yes, last Wednesday. And I catch out of the corner of my eye a magazine that I want to go look at. It's called Disney Parks, and it's a uh, ultimate guide to the Disney Parks. And there's a big picture of the castle on it. And right next door to it is a magazine. And these are big, thick ones. These kind of like special edition things that are like $12, $15. Is a magazine called Marijuana Goes Mainstream. Now, why would you put Disney and marijuana side by side in a market in North Carolina? Well, I guess both of them are addictive. Both of them kind of uh, take you into fantasy both of them take pains away both of them are uh, make people happy in some places uh, however <laughs> uh, marijuana in no way is legal here in north carolina not even recreational marijuana and i guess we've got medical marijuana but you know here it is right next door to marijuana <laughs> marijuana and disney so that means that um yeah, maybe make maybe Mickey Mouse is uh, trying out something else, but uh, no, that means that marijuana has definitely gone mainstream, and you never catch you know like Marlboros go mainstream or anything like that. But now there's two things that are uh, highly addictive, and uh, people spend a lot of money on. That's Disney and marijuana. However, one is illegal in the state of North Carolina, and I think it's only recreationally legal in like eight or ten states, but. 
here we go. So, again, it's okay to, uh, you know, smoke a joint once in a while, but it's not okay to smoke a Marlboro or enjoy your favorite pipe in a public park here in the area. End of rant. All right, comments or questions again, Brian at pipesmagazine.com. Hope you're enjoying all this. I want to, you know, I want to thank Alan for all the time and for all the wonderful stories. And again, thank you all for tuning in. Until next time. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. That guy can turn a commercial into a mini series.